Welcome to NACE Clinical Highlights. I'm Dr. Greg Sherman, Chief Medical Officer for the National Association for Continuing Education. This is the first episode in a two-part series on recent updates in the diagnosis and management of tardive dyskinesia. Joining me is Dr. Greg Mattingly. Dr. Mattingly is Associate Clinical Professor at Washington University and President of the Midwest Research Group in St. Louis, Missouri. Glad you could join me today, Greg. Glad to be here with you, Greg. In this podcast, we're going to review the presentation, diagnosis, and recognize the burden of tardive dyskinesia. In our second podcast in this series, we'll discuss approaches to the treatment of tardive dyskinesia. Greg, before you and I begin our discussion, let's first meet a real patient with tardive dyskinesia, or TD, and listen to her story. Nancy, I want to welcome you and thank you for agreeing to spend some time with us today and being willing to share a little bit about yourself and your story for our colleagues that are listening to this program. First, I'd love to know more about who you are as a person. Well, I've been married for 35 years, and I have three beautiful grown children. Was diagnosed with bipolar when I was 16, and kind of runs in my family. My mother had psychotic episodes. My, I remember my grandmother also having psychotic episodes. So I've been dealing with this for a long time in my life. Nancy, I presume that in the course of your treatment, you've been treated with many different medications that included antipsychotic agents as well? Yes, a lot of them. (laughs) I imagine. Tell us when your symptoms first presented. I was having problems with lesions on my tongue, and I would run to the dentist and have him try to figure out what was going on. And they actually thought I had shingles. And uh, they would Novocaine my tongue just so I could have some um, peace because the pain was so intense. I'm sure that was uncomfortable. What was life like living with these symptoms at the time for you? Life was very hard. I was made fun of by my brother, um, would always get after me about sticking my fingers in my mouth or rolling my tongue around, biting my cheeks. I felt like I couldn't leave the house. I was very homebound. It got as worse as feeling very suicidal. And I just couldn't live anymore with the pain. That's pretty significant impact. How long did it take you to ultimately get diagnosed once you started having symptoms? It was about three, two to three years that Dr. Mattingly figured it out and uh, started me on medications to help. That's great. Tell our audience what life has been like for you since you've been treated for TD. I, I have a life. I, I feel like living. I feel like there's hope at the, the end of all this. I was able to go to my daughter's wedding and not bite the heck out of my cheeks. I just, I feel like a totally different person. I'm glad for you. And that's a great resolution to what sounded like troubling symptoms that impacted your quality of life. Nancy, thank you for joining us today and sharing the impact of this disease on your life and how your life has improved with treatment. Certainly it highlights the need for our having this conversations today. Thank you.
Clearly, tardive dyskinesia has an important and even very significant impact on our patients' lives, and we as clinicians need to do a better job of recognizing and ultimately managing the disorder. Greg, let's start off our discussion with just getting to the basics. What causes tardive dyskinesia, and how does it typically manifest in our patients? Tardive dyskinesia is a medication-induced disorder characterized by involuntary repetitive body movements. So it's caused by a medicine that we as clinicians have started for a patient being treated for depression, bipolar disorder, complex anxiety, or schizophrenia. It also occurs in some people who are treated with antipsychotic medications quite oftenly in that type of patient. We know that tardive means tardy, late or delayed in onset. It doesn't happen when somebody first goes on a medicine but occurs after months or years of treatment with medications such as the atypical antipsychotics that block dopamine receptors in the brain. Kinesia means movement and dys means abnormal. So tardive dyskinesia means a late occurring abnormal movement as we saw with Nancy. The involuntary movements of TD differ from other common movement disorders that many of you may have seen, such as a tremor, or someone with Parkinson's disease. A tremor tends to be rhythmic. It's consistent, but has a consistent frequency in motion, and it may be associated with stress or caffeine or other medicines that can cause a tremor. The disordered movements in Parkinson's involve a tremor, but also have rigidity that affects things such as swallowing, walking, signing our nade, moving our various body parts. So a tremor plus rigidity when we think of Parkinson's. In contrast, tardive dyskinesia consists of dysrhythmic, involuntary, inconsistent movements. Greg, I think your breakdown of the actual roots of the words are very helpful, and that's a great explanation. Hopefully our audience understands better. What parts of the body are typically affected most often, and how should our colleagues examine for those abnormal movements? As we saw with Nancy, tardive dyskinesia most often affects the tongue, the lips, and the eyes. The hands are also commonly affected. The reason the majority of motor cells in the brain are devoted to those same muscles, the muscles that involve the face and the tongue, the eyes, and the fingers. Those are the areas of the body that have the highest risk for getting tardive dyskinesia. You might recall from medical school or nursing school, the homunculus. The homunculus is a roadmap to the various body parts and where we have motor nerve cells in our brain that are aligned with various parts of the cortex. In this map, you see the face and the tongue and the fingers are highly represented, which puts them highly at risk of developing tardive dyskinesia. I don't think I've heard the homunculus in quite some time. You brought me back to my training days, so thank you for pointing that out. You alluded to some of the risk factors for antipsychotic therapy. I wonder if you could go into a little bit more detail of what patient risk factors may present risk for tardive dyskinesia. Certainly. Number one is going to be exposure to a dopamine-modulating medicine, such as an atypical antipsychotic. Other risk factors include being older than 55 years old, female sex, white or African ethnicity having a history or ongoing history of substance use disorders, and unfortunately, the presence of a mood disorder puts you at increased risk of tardive dyskinesia, as does having a pre-existing central nervous system injury, such as head trauma, prior strokes, 
are other CNS insults. Among women, being postmenopausal status further increases the risk, suggesting a hormonal influence and especially the role of estrogen and lack of estrogen is increasing the risk for women. Among conditions treated with antipsychotics, one of the real take-homes for the audience is that depression, when treated with atypical antipsychotics, has the highest rate of tardive dyskinesia, followed by bipolar disorder, and then schizophrenia. We know that the longer you're on your medicines, the longer duration of treatment with antipsychotics, and the higher number of medication exposures, such as we heard with Nancy, increases the risk of developing tardive dyskinesia. And then finally, if you have a history of another type of movement disorder early in the course of being treated with antipsychotics, akathisia, which is restlessness, Parkinsonism with stiffness or tremor, an acute dystonic reaction early in the course of, the, of your condition increases the risk that on down the road, you may develop tardive dyskinesia. We know there's certain risks such as prior existing, extrapyramidal movement disorder, tremor, dystonic reaction, akathisia, prior hist of central nervous system trauma, such as traumatic vein injury, being postmenopausal, being a woman, having a history of a mood disorder, all increase your risk. Thanks for that detailed breakdown of those risk factors. But even with all that information, it is clear that many of the cases of tardive dyskinesia go unrecognized. And Nancy had some period of time where she wasn't recognized. How can you advise our primary care clinicians listening to this to improve the way they go about identifying this disorder? As you heard with Nancy, many people with tardive dyskinesia are embarrassed. They know there's something wrong, but they're already battling depression, bipolar disorder, maybe another mental health condition. And now all of a sudden their lips, their tongues, their eyes are blinking and having abnormal movements. So they're embarrassed. Tardive dyskinesia tends to live in the shadows unless you ask the question. We know that only about 10% of cases of patients with tardive dyskinesia are receiving any type of treatment at the current time. All patients who are taking an atypical antipsychotic in your practice should be screened for the possibility of tardive dyskinesia when they come to your practice. Every single patient, when they're being exposed to these type of medicines, it should be a routine part of screening. Screening can be pretty simple. All patients taking antipsychotics should be asked, have you noticed anything abnormal as far as your movements? Have you noticed anything in your tongue and lips, anything in your eyes, anything in your fingers? And you can ask people to talk about that. We also know that people at first, if you say, hold out your hands, they can flex their muscles and hold them stiff and hide tardive dyskinesia. I'm embarrassed by it. I'm embarrassed to show my clinician. I'm embarrassed to show the people that are with me. If you do something to distract them. And Greg, one of the things I've learned, do a distraction. I want you to tap your fingers of your right hand. But while you're doing that, I'm going to look at your left hand, your tongues, your lip, your eyes to see if I see tardive dyskinesia. Another distraction that works quite well is a cognitive distraction. Ask your patients to start with December and say the months of the year going backwards. As they begin to focus on those months of the year, they get a little bit anxious. They stop focusing on suppressing their tremor. And all of a sudden, you'll see the tardive dyskinesia come to the surface. The abnormal involuntary movement scale, or the AIMS, is one of the gold standards if somebody does have tardive dyskinesia. It's seven questions that go through the various body parts and gives you a score to measure the severity of tardive dyskinesia. When Nancy's case, when she first came in, she had quite severe tardive dyskinesia. 
affecting her lips, her tongue, her mouth, her eyes, even a little bit in her neck and her body trunk. Patient screening have a high correlation. One of the things we've learned is you can do the exam yourself, but if you send them home with a form and ask them to sit down with their family member, their caregiver, and ask them to go through the body parts, actually the correlation is about a 90, 95% chance for being able to screen for and pick up Tardis Kinesia. We know the screening is important not only because of the impact of Tardis Kinesia on quality of life, but also because it's one of the largest causes of medical legal liability for people on psychiatric medications. Certainly having an easy screening tool that we can use hopefully will help our colleagues pick up these patients sooner. Certainly Nancy talked about the impact on her quality of life. You've alluded to it as well. I wonder if there is any other impact of tardive dyskinesia you think our colleagues should know about as they're thinking about these patients. A hundred percent. If I want people to remember one thing as they go home, first of all, tardive dyskinesia can happen to anyone. Nancy's a mom with three kids. She's had a long-standing marriage. And despite all that, she developed tardive dyskinesia with her medicines. We want to know that these movements, it's not the tremor that usually is the most disabling part. It's the stigma and the embarrassment that many of our patients have. If you don't ask about it, people are embarrassed. It tends to live in the shadows. People tend to live in the shadows where they're embarrassed to go out and engage with people. As Nancy said, be a part in wedding pictures with their family. It's a dramatically different picture when people are struggling with bad tardive dyskinesia. When you think about having an abnormal movement disorder on top of struggling with something like depression, tardive dyskinesia can greatly impact somebody's quality of life, their social contacts. Once a clinician recognizes tardive dyskinesia, you've helped to bring it out of the shadows. Then you talk about how does this affect your quality of life? How could treatment potentially improve your quality of life? And then one thing I want you to remember is that tardive dyskinesia quite often is irreversible if left untreated. So helping to improve the quality of life, helping to decrease the stigma, helping patients to come back and just re-engage in life is the goal when we treat tardive dyskinesia. Greg, thanks for a great overview of tardive dyskinesia, which I think will go a long way to helping our colleagues recognize the impact and burden of tardive dyskinesia and recognize some of the challenges that occur when diagnosing these patients. Greg, thank you for having me and thank you to the audience for joining us as well. If you're interested in learning more about recent developments in the management of tardive dyskinesia, join us for the second part of my discussion with Dr. Greg Mattingly titled, Before It's Too Late, Managing Tardive Dyskinesia. Go to the NACE website at naceonline.com for any of our other enduring activities. Please like us on Facebook at NACE CME to be part of our online social media community and get access to other content and programs that we share. Hopefully you've learned something new you can bring back to your patients, and we look forward to having you join us for other upcoming podcasts in the future.